You only get into out of the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much. Yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Hello and welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that aims to explore mental health within football. Last week we had Kevin Cowley, Hillsborough Survivor, on for what was an incredible interview and it seems from the feedback that we've got that you've all been enjoying it and we're really glad that that's come across because we all felt the same when we listened to it a couple of weeks back. Let's see who we've got on the show this week. Um, hi, it's uh, Jamie Curitan, um, an ex-professional uh, footballer. Um, Played for many teams for a long time. Um, I'm now playing uh, semi-professional for Hornchurch. Um, I also coach and run um, Bishop Stortford's Academy. Um, so yeah, it's, it's football basically for the last 30 plus years. Um, that's, that's probably about it. There's not really much else to tell. <laughs> <laughs> so joining me to discuss Jamie's story, the current Hearts manager, future Hearts legend, it's Ryan Pulford. Ryan, how are we doing? Good mate, you? Yeah, not bad, mate. Not bad. How's your um, how's your football manager save going? I was gonna say you needed to caveat that with it being football manager and not real life. Um, yeah, it's going good, mate. Uh, season five at the moment, but um, must admit, I haven't put it on in a few days, struggling for for motivation. So, so uh, I haven't touched it. Still hanging off the coattails of the big team. Uh, won the league one year, which was good. Just need to win the Betfred Cup, really. Well, that's the big one, isn't it? <laughs> I like that you have to make sure that I clarified that you were the actual Hearts manager. I'm sure people would have been confused by that. And there are other bookmakers as well. Um, just that who appears to be sponsoring that cup. Yeah, other bookmakers are available. Um, and joining Ryan is a man who thinks that baked beans have got too much flavour. It's Anthony Olsen. Morning, Anthony. Morning. How are we? I'm well, mate. I'm well. How about yourself? Yeah, not bad, not bad. Uh, speaking of baked beans, Danny, I heard. Uh, well, last year I didn't hear. I saw that you uh, you managed to shave your head this I did. week um, I did, to resemble a, a, a tin of baked beans, really. <laughs> yeah, well, some would say the king of baked beans. I have now become um, all in aid of a good cause. Critical care unit at Arrow Park. Our friend Danny the Brabs raising money for Team DDB. Uh, you can find all that online on the Facebook. We'll knock it onto the Twitter as well, so you can see that too. Um, otherwise, Ant, anything new this week? Anything going on? Uh, not much. Just trying to do some work from home, look after the little one and uh, improve the James Bond impression. That's about it, really. Um, yeah, we've we've heard quite a bit about these impressions. Uh, do you think they're ready for public consumption at this point or are you, are you still refining them? I mean, who are you asking? Are you asking me or James Bond? So they still need refining. Good. <laughs> And, uh, and joining Ryan and Ant is someone who has selfishly told me that she won't be shaving her head during lockdown. <laughs> it's Katie Taylor-Smith. Hiya, Katie. Hi. Hello. How are you? Yeah, I'm not a bad. I'm not a bad. How about yourself? Absolutely wonderful. I'm enjoying what I think we're approaching week three of lockdown. 
Yeah. So, so far I have decorated, exercised, tick-tocked, um, done pretty much everything that every other human has been engaging in. So your TikTok, you know. Katie. What 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 type of content are we are we featuring on the TikTok? Oh uh, well, it's none of that mumsy stuff. Do you know what I mean? You've got to like do a bit of J Lo and a bit of dancing and stuff. Just like try and pretend you're your younger self. Yeah. So yeah. it's only what the cool kids are doing. That's what I aim for. So I'll be releasing that soon. I'll be putting that out on social media. I think. <laughs> I will. Uh, I'll be turning my notifications off. For that. <laughs> Um, so yeah, our first episode that came out last week, I think you'd all agree that the, the feedback's been really nice, been really humbling, and, and, and Kevin sent us a couple of messages saying how, how nice it's been for him to, to receive some of that as well, guys. Our episodes now are available on a number of different platforms, Spotify, Podbean, and I believe we'll be on iTunes when this episode comes out, so that's fantastic. Really getting recognised by the, the industry hotspots. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at Markin underscore man. Uh, and use the hashtag, where's the talking lads? So let's move on to our episode today, which is Jamie Curiton. Brian, you're a bit of a, a football pervert. So what wow. I'd like you to do, <laughs> what I'd like you to do is give the uh, the good listeners uh, a little bit of background on, I'm going to say young Jamie Curiton, not too young these days, but on the footballer that is Jamie Curiton. Today we have on the show the ageless Jamie Curiton. If you're a fan of any football club in England, then he's likely scored against your team. One of only 29 footballers in the world to have massed over a 1,000 competitive appearances with a career spanning over four decades. Jamie started his career in the Premier League with Norwich and has graced nine tiers of the English football pyramid, as well as a short stint in Asia, scoring over 350 goals along the way. Still playing today for Hornchurch, we take advantage of a small and unexpected break in the football calendar to discuss the man behind the record. Fantastic. A man with a, a colourful career and, you know, exceptionally friendly on the day and was really open with chatting with us. And despite some technical hitches, we got a really good interview with him. Uh, and obviously, we, we will have a theme every week, every episode. What's our theme with Jamie? Yeah, so I think, well, there's a few themes that come out of this, this interview. Um, you know, we look at, you look at the way Jamie managed to move around the country and around to other countries uh, throughout his career and, and how he managed to balance that and how he managed to, to keep his, his mental fortitude intact. Um, and we look at the you know, themes of, of selfishness, um, not in a bad way. I don't want to put that out there on Jamie. Um, it's more looking after himself and looking after his family. And, and those themes come out within the interview quite a lot. Um, we look at uh, the culture and the change rooms, the differences from 1993 to, to 2020. And um, it's a really, really interesting career. Um, and it's a really interesting um, time frame uh, from 1993 to now to see how football has changed from then uh, to the present day is, is really fantastic. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, mate. It's uh, yeah, it, it, football and, and, and the world itself has changed quite drastically since that time and, and... To have played at the level that Jamie's played at and scored the goals that he scored throughout that time is is incredibly impressive. Uh, Katie, I'm presuming you hadn't heard of Jamie Curiton before this before this interview. Um, well, I'm not too good on my footballers, but um, I've done a little bit of research this morning, so I don't know a massive amount, but um, I'm sure that will change. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I suppose from your point of view, Katie, as is you know, we're all football fans, and 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 we're kind of very used to seeing players move around the country 
somebody who's not involved, you know, a football fan and, and not seeing that quite as much. Do you think that that kind of looks kind of strange, that jumping around quite a lot must be quite difficult? And yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this before. The All of the different periods of adjustment that he must have had to make with not only himself, but his family, um, that must be really difficult. You know, my own experience, I've pretty much moved around maybe two or three times in my lifetime. Um, he's not that much older than me, but it's a big deal to uproot your life and, you know, to travel, especially um, was it, it was Korea that he went to at one point, wasn't it? Um, to uproot your life and just try and adjust again to a new way of life, a new culture. So that must have been quite a big deal for him, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's a... I think you've just recently moved out, haven't you, mate? And, and you know, from the residual messages we've been getting via WhatsApp and other social media forums, that's been a particularly, uh, you know, can be a particularly stressful time for somebody to do. And so for him to have done it as many times as he has, that must have been really difficult. Yeah, it's stressful. It's it's not a not an easy thing to move out. And particularly during a pandemic, it's not particularly easy at all. Um, and it's definitely not easy now that I've got about... 20 boxes of Ikea furniture just sitting there needing to go to the tip. Um, <laughs> so they'll be there for, for the future. I think Evan's going to make a make a fort out of them soon, or I am. Yeah, you're going to make a fort, mate. Definitely yourself. Um, so, without further ado, this is Jamie Curitan's interview. Right. Okay, so Jamie, your career started in 1993. Uh, when obviously football was uh, a very different place to what it is now. Um, can you give us an idea of what those dress rooms back then were like for a young man like yourself? Yeah, um, real, really tough, I suppose. Um, but I suppose at the time when you're in them, you just think it's the norm. Um, so I, I joined as an apprentice um, and you literally weren't allowed in a first-team dressing room. Um, you had to knock. You had pros to look after. Um, who you were at their beck and call um, and you didn't really ask any questions to be honest it was just part and parcel of, of, of growing up and becoming a professional um, and your sole aim was to get in that dressing room and be part of the group so a lot of initiations went on a lot of um, I suppose you, you'd say bullying nowadays I suppose but you know it was it was deemed as the norm and you got on with it and you had to be a strong character you know as a young young lad which you know I'd grown up in a I suppose a, a, an area where I had to be tough myself and and be a bit more outspoken. So I coped with it fairly well. Um, and then once you started to break into the first team, as in training with them and going into the dressing room, um, you become the sort of butt of the jokes. Um, senior players who maybe felt threatened by you would, I suppose, pick on you and try and put you down as much as possible because they didn't. You didn't take your. I suppose, like I say, you come in, you come in at the, the lower end and. No matter how good you are as a, as a youngster, um, you're going into a, a man's dressing room where senior pros, you know, there's like a pecking order um, and you're at the bottom of it. Um, has that changed over the years? Um, oh, they've definitely changed. Um, I mean, they changed probably from about 2000 onwards um, where things were deemed sort of more bullying and um, there was more acceptance of young players. Um, you had more protection. So, um, yeah, they've definitely changed. Um, and, yeah, I'd say it's for the better. I mean, don't get me wrong, 
what I grew up with, uh, you know, I have no problems with. I think it's made me who I am today. Um, there are obviously limits to it, but there, there's good and bad, I think, in all of it. You know, I'm, I'm still one that I see being involved in academies and stuff that maybe sometimes it's too soft the other way where there's too much protection. So I think it's about getting the right balance. And I think there's, there's good and bad in both eras, really. Um, I mean, I've been quite fortunate to go through, I don't know how many, so... I've seen it all from, you know, the good and the bad. So, you know, when people do say old school and, and stuff like that, like don't get me wrong, there are a lot of stuff that was wrong with it, but there are odd bits within it that I think were good, um, made you grounded, um, made you f respect the job you did, respect the the people, um, you know, so there's there's good bits within it, 100%, and I still use them, I still draw draw from them. You know, as a person, um, but I think the change was needed. I think football has moved on massively, and um, you know, you, you couldn't have those sort of times now. But like I say, the, it's getting the right balance and, and having a sort of mixture of the both. And you say that football's changed a lot over the years. Um, what's the what's the biggest difference? Do you think from then to now? I think the professionalism. Um, I think obviously when I first broke in, it was a, a drinking culture as it was called, but it was just people that, that trained very hard and, and, and went out and that was it. You know, that was part of the culture as, as a top player. Um, there was no sort of restrictions on, on alcohol. Um, there was crates of beer on coaches on the way home from trips. Um, and that was part of it. So as a young kid, you, you, you break into a first team and you play an away game. And that's on the bus. So, so you, you buy into that because, you know, a bit of peer pressure and you want to be accepted as a group. So you do that. So it just seems as the years have gone by, there's been less, I would say, going out. I mean, don't get me wrong, the footballers still drink, but they do it at the right times, which is main, mainly in the summer and stuff. You don't tend to see too much going on for a season of people being out and photographed. I think training's become more, people have been more dedicated to training. Um do a lot more gym work, fitness work. So I think the professionalism has changed massively. Like, like, don't get me wrong, the people when I was breaking into a first team respected the job they'd done, um, but it was an era of that everyone did it. So it didn't really sort of matter too much, but you know, now it's the change and stuff. You've had, to, I think to be a top, top player, you have to be so dedicated to your, to your sport um, and so dedicated to football and, and sacrifice everything, um, you know, we sacrificed a lot when I was growing up, but I think now to be the best, you have to sacrifice so much and, and be just ultra professional um, and work on your game day in, day out, go in every day with a purpose to improve and, and, and get better. Um, and I think when I broke in, that, that wasn't so much the case. Um, I mean, I wasn't professional at all. I turned up, had an ability to, to, to score goals and lived on that for, for a number of years without really improving on it and everyone did so you know you sort of got away with it to a point um where nowadays you know that that won't be allowed to happen if you're a talent and you you have you know a young boy that's, that looks like he's got the chance to be a, a top player then he will be worked on and he will be coached and he won't be allowed to to sort of slip, slip off of that path um and i think that's been the biggest change and i think that's improved you know every five ten years the dedication and professionalism the information you get, you know, everything that, that that's on hand to be used as a as a footballer. Um, I think that's been the biggest sort of change 
Um, and like I say, it changes constantly. People are still looking for more improvements and, and better equipment and, and, and more different ways of eating and sleeping. You know, they, everyone is looking for that, that edge to make, make them and their team the best. Okay. Um, so at a young age, you were offered the chance to join United. Man United. Mm. Uh, Why or how did that come about? Um, it, it was just purely playing sort of local football. Um, I started playing locally under 10s in Bristol. Um, I went to Southampton. Uh, I was at Southampton until I was about 13. Um, but I wasn't associated, I wasn't signed. So um, clubs obviously still knew you were available. Um, and I was still playing locally in Bristol. And we had a, a Man United scout, Vernon Lee, um, who'd obviously seen me play a lot locally. Um, I just started to be going up to Norwich, same sort of thing that, you know, Norwich had a scout around the West country. So I've been at Norwich for about six months training and playing with them. Um, and then got a, an invite to go to, to Man United in an Easter week, just to go and train and play. Um, and that was that. So I went up there, um, enjoyed my week played. And then, um, after coming home, I don't know how long it was after that, I basically got offered uh, a two-year apprenticeship and a, a two-year pro contract. Um, and I'd been offered the same at Norwich. Um, and it basically come down to when I was 15, obviously making a decision of what to do um, once I was leaving school. Um, you know, do I go to Man United or do I go to Norwich? And uh, there was other options and other clubs chasing me locally and, and, and around England. But I just felt comfortable at Norwich um, I, I'd enjoyed my time there. I'd spent the most time there and just felt comfortable. I felt I had had a pathway of, of breaking into a first team because they were not a club that were going to spend loads of money, but try and produce players. I mean, people wouldn't know now, but they were in the top three in the Premier League. Um, they were in Europe, in the Champions League. So it wasn't joining Norwich that you see now that were bottom of the Prem. They were a top Premier League team. So I wasn't, you know, joining a Norwich, like I say, of today, it was a Norwich of, of back then that, you know, were producing players, winning, mainly challenging for the league, playing in Europe. So it just felt comfortable. Um, and uh, even though I'm a Man United fan, I just, Man United were in a stage where obviously Sir Alex was starting to get things going, but it still wasn't great. And they were spending a lot of money on players. And I spoke to my dad and a few people and um, you know, at 15, you know, what do you really know? And I just sort of thought, well, maybe I've got a better chance of playing for Norwich than I do playing for Man United. Um, and, and that was really the, the, the main decision. There was no other reason behind it. Um, and then obviously, if I'd known what was going to happen at Man United, I would have probably gone to Man United because they produced <laughs> their, best, their best youth team and best proper players ever. Um, and I would have obviously been a part of that. But like I say, you make these decisions. You know, as a 15-year-old, I had no idea that that, that was going to happen. Um, and I don't know what would have happened to me within that group. So, you know, you think about it and um, you sometimes, you know, have dreams of what might have happened. But, you know, I, I decided to, to sign for Norwich and, you know, I made my debut for them and, and, and play for them in the Premier League. So, you know, it worked out on, on that side that, you know, that I joined a club, which I eventually broke into their first team and, and played. So during your your time uh, as a footballer, you've moved to quite a few different clubs, um, and some of them, some of them have been on loan. Um, that first one to Bournemouth, 
1995. Mm. What was that like? That first low move away. It wasn't wasn't great in the beginning. Um, I mean, I'd had my first year in the in the first team, and and, and we got relegated. Martin O'Neill come in. Um, I was my normal self in training and stuff, and I don't think he took to me. I think I was down to be in the first team or in or around it, and he didn't really take to me. I think I was the cocky sort of kid who thought I knew everything. Um, and I was out of the first team, and he was like, right, you're going on loan to Bournemouth. So I sort of thought, okay, I'm going to go and play in the first team. Um, bit daunting, driving down. Obviously, I was only a young lad. Don't know anyone at Bournemouth. Um, don't know the manager, don't know any of the players. Um, and then luckily, uh, Michael Dubry was went down there at the same time as me. And we knew each other from playing against each other in the youth team at Chelsea and Norwich. So we stayed in a hotel together, which helped me out a bit, really. But you go there and I suppose you don't know what why you're there. Is it there just to gain experience to come back? Are you going there because you're no longer wanted? And you just have to go there and just try and fit in with the group. Uh, play as well as you can when you're given a chance and and then obviously see what happens from there. I mean, hopefully uh, at a young age, you're, you're expecting to go to do well and get called back. Um, but I didn't know, you know, I had no idea that, you know, what was expected of me and, you know, what was the thought pro the thoughts that were going on at Norwich. I didn't know if I was wanted, if, you know, I, I, they didn't want me. I had no idea. So you sort of just go down there and roll with it for a bit. Um, and then go from there. And I wasn't there that long. Martin O'Neill left, and I, I got called back. And I actually got told later on that he was good friends with Mel Machen, and he basically had just sent me down there to get me out of the way. Um, and there was no intention of me playing. Um, and I don't think I started a game. I think I was sub every game. And when later on I find that find out sort of down the line that that, that was the reason. It was like sort of a punishment, I suppose, to. Right, you can get out on loan to, to to Bournemouth. I know the manager will agree a deal, and will waste a month of your life, I suppose. Um, so when you look at that, you sort of think, well, for a, a nineteen-year-old, it's not not great to be sent away, you know, just because you're not wanted around the training ground. Um, but yeah, I, I I I think I got voted in their worst ever eleven as well, which I thought was a bit bit um, unfair considering I didn't really play. But um, yeah, it was something you just deal with. Uh, but it is difficult. You live in a hotel, middle of nowhere, don't know anyone. And, you know, you just have to sort of get on with it. And and that was how I was. I, I left home at 15 and I'd always been put in positions where you, you sink or swim sort of thing. So I've always been one that, that just gets done with stuff, deals with it and, and worry about it later on. And if I have problems, you know, I'll tell people about them or I'll, I'll ask questions. And I'm always one that just goes with it you know, and, and whether it's right or wrong or whether I should be querying what I'm doing, um, I've always gone, right, I'll get my head down and, and get through it and, and, you know, see what happens. So, obviously, you, you, you've you gone again on loan later on in your career. Um, mm -hmm. Are those type of loan deals, that experience from Bournemouth, does that, those later loan deals? I think they help, definitely. Yeah. I think when you're older, you understand more why you're going on loan. Um, I mean, I went on loan to Barnsley when I was at Norwich for my second time, and I knew that the manager didn't fancy me, um, which was Glenn Roder at the time. Um, and it was either sit at Norwich and train every day and not play and do nothing, or you get an opportunity to go and play for a club. And I've always been one that, you know, the reason I became a football player was to play football. 
It wasn't to sit around. It wasn't to not play. It wasn't to sit in a stand and pick up money. It was to play football. And I've always been that type. And I've always pushed when I'm not playing of why I'm not playing. And if I'm not playing, then I won't go. So I, I knew when that loan come up that I wasn't wanted under Glen Roder. So um, Barnsley come up and um, I knew a few players there and I thought, great, they're in the championship, same as Norwich, I'm going to go and play football. So you go there, I think I went there for two or three months and you know why you're there. So, you know, don't get me wrong, I left my, my missus who was, who was sort of back in Essex. I left her and you go and just live in a hotel again like normal. But I'd been so used to it. Um, you know, where I'd go and train, go back to my hotel room, watch telly, play computer, do something. And, and you know, I'm quite okay in my own company. Um, I don't get bored too easy. I can, as long as I'm occupied with things, I'm, I'm fine. So I knew why that one was. Um, I went on loan to Shrewsbury. That's the following year, because again, Paul Lambert didn't fancy me. My contract was running out and I knew I needed to go and play and maybe put myself back out there to maybe earn another contract. So, yeah, from the early period of the Bournemouth one, of not knowing why I went, as you get older, you understand why you go on loan. You understand what what's at stake. Um, you understand the living conditions. You're going to be in a hotel. You're going to be away from family. You're not in an area where you normally know people. So you, you know that, and, and you either agree to go in or you don't because you can't handle that. And I was always quite comfortable um, of, of doing that so um, I never had any qualms of going it would always be down to is the club right for me to go and, and is it right for me to go on loan or is it not and I wouldn't worry about all the other stuff that, that, that went with it Jamie you mentioned there about um, potentially when you were coming into the dressing rooms you know at a younger age um, that the, the, there was almost um, a, 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 like a bullying culture yeah um, I think you would say bullying now Back then, it was just the culture. It, yeah. You know, where I suppose if if you walked into a dressing room now and, you know, people would sort of half shun you or the banter went beyond a bit of fun, um, you know, you, you felt walking in quite uncomfortable because you were the new sort of young guy and senior pros, especially ones in your position, you know, centre forwards would always look down and think, well, you're trying to take my spot. And they wouldn't have it. So... Yeah, I suppose we had to sing songs, uh, Christmas for Christmas tips, you know, in your pants and get thrown eggs and flour at. And, you know, it was all just part of it. You know, you'd get sent down the shops to buy, you know, sausage rolls and uh, bacon sandwiches on the morning. You'd have to have cups of tea waiting for them. You know, it was very much disciplined and driven towards your sole aim is to get in that first team so you don't have to do this stuff. And, and it was very much you'd have to knock on the first team door and... Like I say, it was all driven around a respect of being a first-team player, not that, you know, you've made it. You had to earn your stripes to get into a first-team dressing room and, and and then sort of relax a bit. But like I say, even once you got in as a young player, you had to earn the respect of everyone. And, um, you know, that was by obviously your ability and, and how you handled yourself. Um, and if you sort of shied away from it and and didn't overly stand up for yourself, then you would get more. And that was it. I was quite a, you know, a bit of a rascal, I suppose. And I would answer back and I would give as good as I got. And I think in the end, you earn their respect that way. Um, but yeah, it was a dressing room that if you were weak minded and didn't stand up for yourself, then I, I would imagine a lot of players along the way, 
have fell out of football or fell out of the club maybe they first started at because of you know the dressing room and and how sort of strong it was was there ever any ever a time that you that you either something was done to you or you saw something done to a, a teammate and you kind of thought you know even though you know you, you you're within that bubble you ever thought that's too far or that's not on um no i didn't i didn't get to a point where i seen anything like that um, where people had either stuff done to them or said to them, um, you know, there was never like anything that overly shocked me. Um, you know, it was just banter, but sometimes obviously over, it went overboard from what you would do now, things you would say, but no, there was never anything where I looked and thought, okay, that, you know, that is pushing it a bit too far. Um, you know, things were just done. I mean, I went on tour when I was young and, Three, three of the pros got me and Nadia can buy drunk from playing killer at pool. And it was all just stuff where they were senior pros and more wise and, you know, knew the, knew the game a lot more. And, and you were trying to, I suppose, break into that and earn their respect and be one of the guys that you tagged along and did silly things. And, and they would have provoke it and ask you to do stuff, you know, a bit when you're like you're young and you're around, you know, older, older friends. That the youngsters are always the butt of the jokes and they're always asked to do silly things which they wouldn't do but you think oh, i'll do it because it impresses them so that was more of it it wasn't really anything like that i would say too outrageous but that doesn't say that that didn't go on in in, in that time because like i say even managers the, there was no one you could really say anything to you know you'd get looked upon and they would just say well you know man up or you know it's a man's game and you know all the same sort of stuff that gets that we talk about now and saying well Surely that's not right, but that was what was said. And you either, you know, see or swim, so to speak. And, and and like I say, I'd imagine there's a lot of good players that, that couldn't handle that, that, that maybe fell out of the game at an early stage because, you know, the dressing room was, um, you know, it was a fierce place to be. And they felt that if you couldn't handle that, then you'd be no good to them on on a football pitch playing, you know, 90 minutes. Do you, um, do you agree with that sentiment? Um, not really, no. Not at all, because everyone's, as I've grown up, everyone's completely different. And, and even though if you can't handle certain things, doesn't make you weak. Um, it's just how you're, how you're built and that's it. And I don't think there's the sort of strong arm tactics anymore of, you know, you've got to be a lunatic or, you know, run around and headbutt things and, and, and be stupid to, to be able to play in a Premier League or play in any team. So... You know, I think now you have a mix of everyone. Everyone's different. You still get those characters and they're great. You still get lunatics that will do anything and, and say anything and, and they're fine. But you get people that sit in the corner and, and are quiet and, and like to read and, you know, do different things. And, and that there's nothing wrong with that. Obviously, back then, you that was unheard of. You know, it just... you, you Anyone that was different got sort of... Not picked on, but... You got looked upon differently. Where nowadays, uh, you know, you can you can be what you want, and you know, as long as you do your job on a Saturday and you train well in in the week, then no one cares. Um, so no, I don't agree with that solely. That you needed to be this to be a footballer, um, not at all. And I think that's what's good about it now. It, it's changed, and it, it gives a lot of you know different people the opportunity to to, to make it in the game. Um, so yeah, that's that's one good thing, definitely. That you know, it's not so strong arm tactics that you have to be, you know, crazy to, 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 you know, to be warranted, you know, a spot in a team, you know, you can be quiet and you, you can like to cook, you can like to do anything, you know, that's nowadays it's, it's fine. You know, no one, 
really frowns upon anything as, as long as you do a job, you know, when you're called upon. So we spoke to, to, to Mike, Mike and Teller obviously runs the development college at, at Tranmere and he, he had some, uh, he, he, you know, the way that he deals with the, the, the kids and stuff that are in the, the, the academy and that, uh, you know, the college and stuff with, with him. Mm-hmm. And, and he said it's, it's, Maybe in a way it's gone maybe too far the other way in the way that, that, that you're allowed to, to speak to youngsters and deal with youngsters. Yeah, um, yeah that, that's one thing I would say, 100%. I think it's finding the right balance and there's good in what I was brought up in and there's, there's bad and I think there's the same in the new school. There's good and bad and I think it's getting the balance between the two that you, you, you draw the good from both. Um, I worked at Arsenal for two and a bit years in, in their youth academy and that opened my eyes a lot to how things are so, so different. The, the power that kids have, um, things you can and cannot say to them, things that they can do and can't do, like every across the whole board, I felt that there was too much the other way. And I don't know then what type of person or player you're then creating. So, yeah, I think we've... It's great to have all the support, the network that they've got, especially at Arsenal. It was unbelievable. There's psychiatrists, there's welfare. Anything you want is there. They have meetings and is it's you know, it's great, but are we going too far? Um so and you'll always get frowned upon, especially my age of oh, it's old school and this, but it I think it's not. I think that there's just there are good things of what we used to get and I think as long as you can take them with you and get rid of the bad stuff and you combine them together, then then you've got it. But I think at the moment, yeah, we're way the other way now. And, and you know, I don't know if we'll ever get that drawn back or it will just keep going and you'll keep going even further and further in, in, until you literally, you know, can't say anything to anyone in a way. Um, so, yeah, I think there's, we have to be careful that we, we don't get into that sort of state where we, we go so far the other way. Um, so yeah, hopefully we can get the balance, you know, right where you can, you know, have a bit of both. Because I don't think what I come through was all bad. Um, but what I wanted to to ask you about was around sort of the effect that it can have on your home life and social life of of being a footballer. So obviously you've made a, a lot of moves in your career. Uh, I think we counted around about twenty eight short term and long term moves, um, and that comes naturally with, with being in the game for so long. Um, it's often glamorised being a footballer, but could you sort of talk about the difficulties that can be, sort of moving your your family, having to travel far to your new club, and and the impact that can actually have on a player? Um, yeah, I don't think it's it's great. Um, I suppose, I mean, every career is obviously different. So, you know, definitely playing a, playing football is always, especially what you see is the top end, and you know, the glamour, the money, um, players signing long contracts and not moving around as much and, and maybe playing for five clubs in their career, you know, even less. So that's the sort of top side of it. And then you, you know, you go down the leagues and the contracts aren't as long. Um, you know, you, you move around sometimes for a bit more money, you know, sometimes you're not wanted. So you have to move around a lot more. So it does become quite, quite difficult and different. Um, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I've dealt with all of this, you know, fine. You know, my drive was to play football for as long as possible um, and enjoy it. So a lot of the times me moving around wouldn't so much affect me too much, you know, but affect my family more. And, you know, even my missus, I put her through loads. I mean, we lived apart for two years. Um, 
purely the fact that we were based in Essex and I played for Exeter, um, lived at my mum's house. So we, we spent a whole season apart. I used to drive obviously home and stuff to see her. Um, but my drive to play football, they were the only team at the time that wanted me. So my drive was, well, I want to play football, so I'm I'm going to go and do this. You know, I, I've got an earn a living. Um, and, and that was sort of my attitude towards it. Um, I then come back for a year playing for Leighton Orient. So we lived together and then that didn't go great. So I Exeter was another option again in the following year. So I left again. So within three years, we you know, we'd been married as well. Um, we spent two years apart. You know, obviously we've seen each other, but I'm one of them that I was very selfish and, and self-driven in football, but nothing else sort of mattered to me. Um, it was as long as I was playing um, and I was at the right club or if it was the only club that wanted me at the time, I would go because I wanted to be a professional footballer and, and keep playing. So I was good at dealing with it more than people around me. I would say the people around me were the ones that suffered the most, um, you know, just for my my selfishness and, and self-drive to, to continue to play football. Um, so it's not easy, definitely not. Um, I mean, I moved abroad and left my kids um, and that was probably my biggest challenge that at the time it, I'd, I'd split up from their mum and wanted to get away. So South Korea seemed quite a nice place to go. So I... Um, I flew off there and that was my worst time in my, my life, I suppose, and probably the worst time in my, in my career where I, I'd gone somewhere and done something, made a move that I couldn't deal with. Um, and that was when I felt probably at my lowest. And um, after six months, I had to cancel the contracts and come home because for the first time, I couldn't I couldn't deal with, with the football side wasn't enough at that point. Um, so I, I, I come home, but all the other moves, I've all been fine. I've dealt with them. Don't get me wrong. There's there's down times and low times and not seeing friends and family. Um, but football has always been my drive. That has always kept me sort of sane, I suppose. And I've always looked back and thought, well, this is why I'm here. This is the reason I'm here. So, you know, until there'll be a long time when I do retire. So, you know, these sacrifices have to be made. When you went out to, to, to South Korea, how did, how did that move come about? Mm. Um, I just, my contract had run out at Reading. Um, I've been offered a new deal. I spoke to Alan Pardew. He was very happy for me to stay. And this sort of comes back to me wanting to play all the time and play as much as possible. And in my final year there, I'd, I'd been in and out, hadn't played as much as I'd wanted to. You know, don't get me wrong, I'd still played a fair part of the season, still scored goals. But I was like, OK, you know, what shall I do? So I had options around England in the Championship and stuff. Um, and my agent come up to me and sort of give me a call and said, look, we've got a club in South Korea and a club in America. Um, you know, they'd, they'd like you to fly out and look at them both. Um, and I just left my girlfriend at the time and uh, two kids. So I wasn't in a great space outside of football. So I thought, OK, I'll fly out in, this, in our off season. And it was in their seasons. So we're still going. I'll have a look around. So I went to South Korea first for five days, flew back and then flew to America for five. Um, enjoyed both of them. Uh, DC United was the American team. Um, they had uh, Stoichkov playing for them. Wow. So I, I, would have, I trained with him and he'd have been my strike partner. Um, and then I went to South Korea. Um, and again, very different, but it was unbelievable. They just had the World Cup. So the stadiums, the training facilities, 
it was uh, amazing. Um, and just sat down and spoke to friends and family. Uh, everyone was thought I was crazy even thinking about it. Uh, my mum and family broke their hearts because obviously whichever move I made, if I was going abroad, I was leaving my two young kids. Um, they knew obviously I was I was separated, but obviously living in England is a lot easier to see your kids than living in America or South Korea. So yeah, it was um, it was more like I said harder for them at the time. You know, I made the decision to go right. I'm going to leave Reading. Um, I'm going to go to Korea. I made that decision. I just looked at both. Uh, money was much better in in Korea, and just looked at him for you know if, if I'm going through a bit of a hard time off the pitch, me getting away will take me out of that situation, having to deal with her. She was, you know, wasn't the best person to deal with at the time. Um, but I didn't then look at all the other consequences that went along with it. Um, so I think after about a month being out there, I knew I'd made the wrong decision. Um, the football was okay. Uh, there was nothing wrong with, with that, with the, the, the training facilities, like I say, the games, everything was fine, but I missed the buzz of English football. We didn't get massive crowds. Um, I missed all of that. And then ultimately I missed my family, um, not seeing my two kids, speaking to them on the phone, not being able to see them. The time zone was crazy. So I ever spoke to them at midnight or spoke to them at seven in the morning or something. It was bonkers. And it was the one time where football wasn't enough and, and I felt I need to get home and used to cry a lot on the phone to my mum and, and, and like my kids. And just sort of thought, you know, I need to get back as quick as possible. Um, you know, this isn't this isn't right. It's not working. Um, and I was probably at my lowest point in my life, really. Um, it was just a case of trying to get through it and, and just count the days down. My dad flew out and stayed with me for a few weeks. Um, and then finally, I'll come home in December. Season ended, I'll come home. And then basically told my agent, I had another year and said, look, I can't go back. And we spent basically from December till the end of January uh, trying to get out of my contract, um, which thankfully we did. And QPR come in, spent a bit of money to get me out of it. I give money back to get out of it. Um, and then I was probably scarred for about a year, you know, on and off the pitch. I, I wasn't in a great frame and just trying to deal with that. So that was the one stage I'd say in my whole career where I had a, a real, real bad moment and, and football wasn't enough to pull me through it. Um, and I just had to get on with it. And I've always been a positive guy and um, I always just felt, you know, things will turn around. I will get my career back on track. You know, I was seeing my kids obviously again, which was fine. Um, and in the end, the QPR move worked okay, but wasn't great. I then went to Swindon, which was nice. I moved sort of back home. So I see my kids more, but that sort of didn't work. And then I had a loan move to Colchester and yeah, that kick-started my career again. Um, and then I got going again. But I've always been one that's been very positive and always got a lot of self-belief in myself. Um, and I've always just, you know, when things go wrong or aren't working, it's a case of, you know, putting my head down and finding a solution, you know, to, to, to make it right and to, and to work with it. Um, and I've always done that. And, and thankfully, you know, I've managed to always come through difficult times, whether it's on the pitch or off the pitch. And I've managed to get through them and deal with them. You, you, you've sort of moved on quite nicely to, to the next question there, Jamie. I, I, obviously, you, you, you're still playing football now. Um, mm. And it, to, to have had a career as long as yours, you must have had, you must have incredible sort of self-motivation and, and you know, mental belief. And what do you kind of do to 
keep yourself motivated to keep going? Um, to, to keep playing is is a, is probably just a pure love of football. So take everything away from that, as in what league you play in, how much money you earn, who you play for, anything like that. Just take it back to being a kid and playing football. Um, and that's how I treat football. So, you know, as long as I can still play, I will always play because I love, you know, I've loved the sport from a kid. There's a reason I started playing, um, kicking around in the garages and playing on the school field, playing on the streets. So as long as I can do that, then I'll, I'll always, you know, do my most to play. And I think that's always been my drive. I've just always wanted to play football, always wanted to be a footballer. Um, and I suppose that's why I've moved around probably more than I should have done for the fact of wanting to play. I've never liked not playing. Um, and maybe, you know, why I've played for so many teams and, and like I say, moved around a lot. And why I'm still playing now is purely the, just the love of, of turning up and on Saturday um, and playing in front of whether it's 50, 60,000 or, or 50, 60 people. You know, the results, the end game is still the same to me. It's, it's, mm. it's a football pitch, there's goals. You know, players on it, and you've got to try and win. And I've my my sort of sole aim is to try and score and and, and stuff like that. So I've always treated it like that, um, and I think that's why I found it so easy to to drop into non-league and play at some of the places I've played, where you know I've had a lot of friends and ex-professionals say, "How can you, you know, have the motivation to do it?" And I think that I take everything away and, and and just look at it as me just enjoying playing football, whether it's a, a, a carpet of the surface or bumpy hard you know like I say no stands it's just me out there playing football and, and, and loving what I do and, and I take away the surroundings of it and I just enjoy you know running around kicking a football Have you um, thought much about what you want to do post-retirement? Yeah I've had loads of ideas and my, my main plan when I was coming into 30s and obviously assuming I was going to retire a normal age was was to go into media. Um, I'd fairly enjoyed um, doing radio and TV work, um, and that was my plan. Obviously, I've kept playing, so you could only do so much media because most of the time it's on the same days as as, as I'm playing. Yeah, Tuesdays, Saturdays. I mean, I do a lot of stuff for Norwich, um, co-commentary. I've done talk sport and BT and stuff, but I think to carve a career out, you have to retire and and put yourself into it and, and hope it works. And obviously I've kept playing. So that's something I'll still try and do as much of. And it, it would probably be my ideal job if if I got offered, a, you know, to work for a Sky BT or TalkSport, that would probably be the ideal thing for me to retire and go and watch football and talk about it and enjoy it. Um, I've now started badges. So I'm up to my, my level, my A for B and, um, worked in an academy at Arsenal um, but, but I think I really enjoyed it but I think if I'm going to coach or manage it's going to have to be more senior people than, than youngsters that, yeah. that was something I learned. Um and then I've managed Bishop Stortford um, as a player manager in non-league and thoroughly enjoyed that so it's hard because I keep playing I keep trying to figure out what I want to do and then I keep playing for another year so I think the, <laughs> non-league, the non-league management one I've, I have really enjoyed and I would, would definitely like to maybe keep doing that. Um, like I say, the media stuff I'd like to do. Uh, and then I'm looking into a few other different courses. Um, I quite like managing rather than coaching. So I've looked into, I think the PFA do um, some sporting director or 
stuff like that sort of courses. So something like that would really intrigue me to to be the buffer between the manager and the board. Um, and I think I, um, I think it was Marcus Bean was talking about that mm-hmm. on, on something I was listening to. He's doing something. He's looking. Yeah, at doing I, I heard someone like... the other day that, that spoke about it. I can't remember. It was on the radio, and they said, and I didn't realize he did courses for it. Um, but it's something that you know I enjoy managing. I enjoy you know. I'm quite a people person, so I I know the, the ins and outs of clubs and how they should work and whatnot. And I I think that would be something I'd, I'd enjoy or be a manager and have good coaches beneath me. Um, I'm one that, that does enjoy the the talking to people, the man management side, um, the tactical side of it, and, and buying players. And I would enjoy all of that, and then maybe then get good coaches in to go and you know do that on the coaching field. Um, but again, these jobs aren't given to you. you. You know, you have to yeah. work hard for them. You have to be in the right place at the right time. Bit of luck, know someone who's in a role who can help you. Um, so yeah, I've got ideas in my head, and you know, it's just trying to to speak to the right people and and hope that the right job does come up, and you you have an opportunity to to do it. But whatever it is, it will only be football. Um, you know, I'm coming up to 45, and that's all I've done from the age of seven. So I was never great at school. I've never taken any other courses. You know, my life and soul is football. And for me to go into a, another role, I'd be starting from scratch. And I think at my age, that's probably not the best thing to do. So, you know, I feel I have a lot to, to offer and give back to football um, in whatever capacity. So hopefully, you know, the right the right thing will come along and, and I can have another 10, 15 odd years of, of giving back to football and you know, if at the end in my 60s I can retire and, and know that I've spent my life in football, I'll, you know, I'll be a happy guy. Do you have any um, any trepidation about sort of what life will be like when you're not playing football? Any any worries or fears about that? Yeah, I have, I have massive fears about it. Um, I, I suppose even now my routine's still quite good. You know, I'm so used to being structured of getting up, going to training, coming home, having a Wednesday, having a Sunday off, playing Saturdays, midweek. And even now in non-league, I train on a Tuesday, train on a Thursday, play on a Saturday, sometimes play midweek. So my structure is pretty much the same. You know, I just get a few more extra days off. I go in and coach in Stortford's Academy every day. So again, very structured. It's all football. I think if that was taken away from me, yeah, I, I don't know. Like I say, I'm, I'm, I'm quite... I would say very strong-minded as a person and I deal with a lot of stuff and always find a way of, of getting through it and moving on. Um, I think that would be my biggest challenge. If if suddenly someone said, right, that's football done and you have no job within football and you have to go and do something, um, I think then there would be a, a massive struggle and I would have to find something really good that would give me that sort of, energy and buzz and drive to get up every day and go to work. So I don't know what job that would be, but I definitely do fear it. I've always feared not playing. Um, it's not not a reason why I keep playing, but I've always feared, you know, if if at some stage football is taken away from me, um, in any capacity, you know, what would I do? Um, and yeah, even friends, when I, when I retired, or not retired, but when I come out of professional football at 40, I had friends ring me and say, look, you know, if you're if you need anything, call me. I think they were quite worried that I'd obviously been in football for so long to suddenly then not be a professional. Um, and I didn't really think about it until that I had the phone calls and texts and 
I was like, okay, but luckily I went in straight into non-league um, and that's given me, you know, I suppose it's weaning me off a lot, a lot easier um, rather than just stopping. Um, but yeah, if I finish, if I retire and then I'm not, I don't have a job in football, then yeah, I'm not sure, you know, how I'll cope or, or how I feel, but that is something that if that does happen, um, yeah, I'm going to need a, a good sort of sit down and think and, <laughs> and, and try and recover. Um, but hopefully if I retire from playing and I'm in football in any capacity, then I think that will help me out. And, you know, I, I'd be very selfish if I suddenly retired at my age and played for as long as I did and still moaned that I wasn't playing. You know, I think that when I do retire, I would have um, squeezed every ounce of, you know, my playing career out of my body. So whenever that day is that I can't play anymore, um, I'll be more than satisfied that, that, that I've got everything out of, out of myself and, you know, played, let's say, for as long as possible. So, you know, that won't be the problem retiring. It'll be what I do after. That'll be, I think, the the, the next challenge. Have you, um, you obviously will have uh, people that you've played with and, and you know, the ex-footballers who've, mm. who've retired. Have you spoken to any of them about how difficult they've found it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I spoke to a lot of older players when I was quite young that, that retired. And, and their one thing they all said to me was play for as long as possible. Um, I felt they they feel empty. Um, the fact that they, they don't get up every morning and know what their routine is. I think that's the biggest thing as a footballer, is your routine, whatever level you play at, is the same. And I think to do it for even probably five, six years, to then have it suddenly taken away you feel lost and um, you don't feel you have a purpose. Obviously, as a footballer as well, you're a name. You're not just you, you're Jamie Kilton, the footballer. Whereas once that's taken away from you, you just become, so to speak, a normal human being. And I think people struggle with that. Um, but I've spoken to, to, to people sort of recently, one of my good friends, Darren Eady, who, who spoke out about it. I had no idea. I mean, I've known him since 12. And he spoke out about the troubles he'd had um, and his were different. I, mean, I think he had to retire early, and I think that played a major part in him, that his career was half taken away from him, rather than him fulfilling his potential and playing until he wanted to retire. Um, the thing is when your career is taken from you rather than you deciding you've had enough. Um, and yeah, I think they've all just felt very, very empty. Um, let's say lost. Um, you know, you... you, you you're so used to doing what you do to suddenly now find a new career to start all over again, something, you know, a, a new career, a new life, a new job. And I think they've struggled in that, in that respects. Um, is there any, um, is there any framework within the game, either within the PFA or the FA or clubs themselves to kind of, cause I've heard of, I, I work in, in, in healthcare and one of the, the, the schemes that they run with, with doctors nowadays is that they, they do, um, partial retirement schemes so you stagger your retirement so rather than going from working full-time to not working at all they do three days and then two days and then half a day and they stagger it like that obviously you wouldn't be able to do the same thing with with footballers but are there any sort of similar schemes that they have in place in football to try and help people that transition i'm not sure now there wasn't when i was sort of coming to the end i suppose in the professional game um but i would imagine there is now because of Obviously, how so many people have, have spoken out with their troubles of, of, of retiring. So you'd like to think within the PFA, 
um, there's a lot more help. I know there's a lot of obviously courses and, and jobs you can go into, so they try and prepare you more for retirement. So they try and give you, you know, obviously job opportunities you can go for. But I say there's the courses, they try and um, get you to take your badges to, to try and give you something. So when you do retire, that you feel you have other skills to, to get other jobs, you know, because again, from being in my era, it was a case of play football, retire at 35, take your pension, and that's you done. And and that was what, as a kid, I was brought up on. Obviously, nowadays it's changed and there's a lot more people that look after you and take care of your money and help you invest. Um, and obviously, you know, they ask you to take other courses, you do more schoolwork. Um, so I think you're more prepared, definitely. And I think that's why I've found the people that have spoken out are more people of my era, my sort of age. I don't know how many of the younger boys coming through will have the same problems or they shouldn't have because of what they they get and the support system they have. And then I think when you hear the boys that are speaking and are coming out about it more now, I think you'll find they're more between the ages of late 30s into their 40s. Um, and I think that's the way we were all brought up that, again, we just played football. We're meant to play, earn money, retire, and then that's it go and buy a pub, be a postman. You know, that was what old footballers used to do. And there was not really a, a structure around it, a plan. Um, and I don't think that helps, you know, players retiring, not having any structure, not having a plan. I think we're, we're, we're very organised sort of people and we like that. We like to know what we're doing from day to day. You know, even when you're playing, you get told, be at an airport, meet the coach, you know, don't even need to bring your boots half the time. Everything's sort of done for you. And all of a sudden, you know, you're on your own um, with no structure, no plan. And I think that's where people start to struggle, have too much time. So they drink, they gamble, you know, marriages fall apart because they're lost. Um, so hopefully the, the plan and structure in place that should be now for the youngsters should be a lot better. You know, don't get me wrong. You know, people will still have mental health problems and still struggle with stuff. But I think the age groups that you see that are talking are all more sort of the older sort of group who didn't really have any plans in place, I suppose. Um, and I think that's why they're struggling. We, um, we spoke with, uh, with Miguel Delaney who um, writes for the independent and he, he wrote an article um, a couple of years back, um, which was about when Danny Rose opened up about mm -hmm. some of his yeah. struggles with depression and anxiety as a, a fellow footballer, what was that like to read? It's 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 definitely sad um, because you see a, a top player, someone who's in the limelight all the time, playing for Tottenham in England, you know, talk out and say about his problems. Uh, but then at the same time, you feel it's very brave. Again, when you talk about the industry we're in, for anyone to be different or, or say different things, go against the grain, prepare to speak out a bit. You know, you get ridiculed. You know, you put yourself up to be shot down. So I thought it was very brave of him to, to come out and, and, and say how he was feeling because, you know, within our sport, it's a very macho sport. People don't like to to say how they're feeling. They don't like to say that they've got problems, that they're struggling because as soon as you do that, you know, you're there, people will have a go at you. Oh, you're a professional footballer, you earn this money, you do this. You know, how can you have problems? And, you know, I thought it was brave at the time for him to come out and say that because it does put him up there on a pedestal for people to have a go at him, maybe still within a dressing room, players would banter him. Um, but
But I thought it was brave. I thought it was very, very good of him because I think by him doing it, it allowed probably other players not as well known to feel more confident about speaking about their problems as well. So, um, you know, like I say it's, it's mixed. You feel sad for him because of what he's going through, but at the same time, you're pleased and and, and feel grateful for him that he, he come out and spoke about it. Because I think doing that, you know, would have helped a lot, a lot of other players. Do you think then that there are other footballers do fit in the same boat who've had similar experiences to it? I think so. Yeah, I would imagine there's loads. And again, it's it's only the brave ones that will come out and speak. You know, I'm pretty sure that, that a lot of players carry stuff along the way. You know, there's probably people I would have played with never would have known, you know, that they put a front on. You know, I've heard a lot of players that would walk through a door and suddenly just shut down and be this person, get on with training and then go home and be someone completely different and, and, and be depressed and have anxiety and, and everything else. So I would imagine that there'd be loads like it. Um, and they put a front on, obviously, while they're at work and then go home and, 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 and be someone completely different. So, you know, hopefully the, the work that gets done, the, the more we speak about it, um, you know, more people will come out and, and not ask for help because, you know, I, I couldn't think of anything worse on someone to, to, to not feel comfortable, to have anxiety, to not be enjoying what they're doing and, and to, to put a front on, um, you know, and not feel that they can speak to people and be, and be honest and open about, about how they are. And that could be anything, you know, you could have any minor problem in your life. Um, there's nothing better than talking about it um, to help you out. So to carry things around is terrible. Um, and, you know, by doing that, you never know what that effect has on the person, you know, does, you know, affect them mentally? Do, do they want to commit suicide? There's so many things that, that it can drive you to do. Um, and it might be the simplest of things that, that, that might have saved that, you know, and that might be just talking about it and being honest and open and, and, and people, um, being open with them and, and, and welcoming what they're saying and trying to help them along. Um, and I'm one of these people that, you know, I smile at most people along the street and sometimes just an hello and hello and just to be polite to someone, open a door, you know, it might brighten up their day and they might be someone who might be struggling. So I'm one of them that I feel whatever act of kindness you can do to anyone, you know, goes a long way. You mentioned um, earlier about obviously football is quite a, a macho environment, uh, you know, and, and I think it does the way the football is an industry sort of glorifies masculinity, you know, aggression and strength and yeah. that sort of thing and, and potentially sort of vilifies weakness and emotions. Do you think that sort of that that masculinity aspect is a, a, a potential barrier to allowing sort of footballers to open up about this sort of thing? Yeah, probably. I would imagine some of the, the people you feel are the strongest and, and and strongest physically and mentally might be the people that are the weakest, that they put on a, a brave front, um, shout and scream and, you know, look look the, the part and stuff, but maybe behind closed doors, they're the ones that are struggling. So, yeah, I've always found the people that are the quietest are normally the strongest people. You know, they don't need to shout and and rave about what they do and, and how strong they are and, how, you know, what they're good at. I think you tend to find they're the ones that are the more comfortable with themselves. Yeah. Um, and the ones that have to brag and shout and be the, the life and soul of the party and the class clowns and them sort of things are the ones that are, are struggling. And that's how, what gets them through it. You know, that gets them, they feel wanted. Um, they feel liked. 
Um, and really, they're not comfortable with, with, with who they are. And, and, and that's why they're, they're, they're obviously acting like that. And like I say, sometimes we worry about the other ones that sit in the corner and are quiet and you think, oh, what's wrong with them? And they're normally the ones that are the most comfortable in their own skin and, and they don't need to be in the centre of attention. They don't need people to be laughing and, and you know, their jokes. They're, they're happy and content in, in, in what they're doing um, and, and they don't need to sort of shout, shout about it. So, yeah, I think a lot of them, you know, the, 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 the outspoken and, you know, the, the boys that put the big front on are probably the ones that, that maybe need the most help. So, Jamie um, Curran there. I think if anyone's qualified to talk about the life of a professional footballer, it's Jamie Curran. He's played for so long and for so many clubs. You know, he started his career in the 90s. He's still playing now in, in 2020. And football is an entirely different place now than it was then, as, as, is, the, as is the world. And... Just listening to that interview, do you think it's a difficult, more difficult place now or more difficult place in the 90s to come through as a footballer? It's a tricky one, isn't it? I think you've got to, you've got to understand that you know, you're talking about a, a period of time that was quite a while ago now. Um, 1993 was when I was born, so that's how long ago it was. I'm, I'm 27, even though people say I look about 47. <laughs> Um, <laughs> there's far too much laughing from Katie there. <laughs> um, but no, it, it is a very, very difficult. It's a difficult opinion because people looking back now will go, "Oh, that was quite like uh, bullying." Um, but people involved in that period probably wouldn't see it that much. There are obviously instances where you know we've heard people have come out and said, you know, the the treatment of them was pretty bad and pretty poor, and that that culture was. Um, really difficult and you do wonder if there were a lot of players who fell out of the game or struggled in the game because of those environments the cultures in the change room yeah they could probably uh, have been better but maybe that was just the way it was back then um, but no we are definitely progressing to a to a much more inclusive environment for, for young footballers particularly if you think about football in the 90s football now and if you look at them as workplaces yeah I suspect during that time, if you think you're going into your work environment, you're being told you've got to clean other people's boots, you've got to go and get them their breakfast, you've got to earn your right to even be in the room, you're not allowed in the room unless you knock on the door. For a young person going into that environment as a workplace, that must be really intimidating, whereas nowadays it seems as though it's a lot more welcoming, you're not allowed to do that type of thing. But football's a tough environment, less than 1% of academy players actually make it as pro footballers. So they need to be toughened up. They need to know that that's a harsh environment. How do you kind of get that balance in a workplace? I mean, I reckon there's pros and cons to both time periods. So if you were a young person who has got these kind of ideas of making it in the world as a footballer, and then you feel lucky enough to be given that kind of privilege, and then you've got to work your way up and earn your position and earn your respect in what probably being a you know a male dominated um environment i would imagine it would have been a little bit intimidating quite hostile um whereas now you can just go in and you've earned your stripes before you go in and you're probably more welcomed because there's more safeguards and put in place there's more equal rights put in place but if we were to go back to that time period, I would say 
that there's probably a lot of life lessons learned there about respecting your elders, respecting your position as a newcomer, um, and just kind of earning your position of not just taking things for granted, not just having expectancies to be respected from the get-go. So I would like to think that now, although there's more safeguarding in place and players are seen to be treated more equally, part of me isn't 100% sure if that's actually what happens or if that's what's portrayed to happen or if that's what we're pushing to happen. But there's definitely something to be said for working your way up and earning your respect of your peers, like, you know, some of the aspects of, of being a footballer years ago. Jamie's low move to Bournemouth at 19. You know, Martin O'Neill didn't want him around, so you sent him off somewhere else. And you're thinking a 19-year-old lad. I mean, Jamie was seemed, you know, he said he's quite self-confident. He, you know, he had a lot of belief. He was determined. But you could imagine somebody maybe a little bit more emotional, a little bit more sensitive. That could have really damaged somebody. I think there's yeah. a bit of an issue nowadays with, you know, footballers are treated like commodities. And, and so moving them around like that, it might be difficult to not understand that it's a person's life that you're moving around there. And I think that was particularly highlighted when, you know, when when, when Jamie made his move to Asia, uh, a bad career move, some might say. Oh, oh God. <laughs> Did you just say that? <laughs> I think that was I think it's that went okay. Got, that went okay. Got your hair shaved off, it's gone to your head now. <laughs> <laughs> that 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 trip to Korea, Ryan, I, I thought it was really interesting. It was Jamie kind of talked about it as the first time the football wasn't quite enough. Yeah, I think he's made a brave decision, hasn't he? And he touched on in the podcast, he went just after the World Cup was there. And if anyone remembers that World Cup, they were probably some of the best facilities in the world. Um, at the time and probably still are today to be honest so it wasn't really a league that was well renowned and um, a lot of people would have questioned that but I think it takes a very brave person to do that he, he touched on leaving his family as well to make that career move so I think that just shows you why he's had such a, a long career he's clearly got a very strong mentality where it was a case of football I don't want to say nothing, but football was always going to be the number one driver in his decision-making. That's not to say that other things weren't important to him, but I think at that time he just said, I'm a footballer, this is the equivalent of my nine-to-five and this is the best offer I have on the table, similar to maybe somebody moving their life to another country to to do their job. Um, I think he also made that decision when, was it he joined Exeter later in his career? He he again had had to leave his family, which I'm sure wasn't an easy choice but he sees his, his his football as important as anyone else sees their job and um that that's just what happened at the time so i think it was a very brave choice to be honest with you and obviously at the moment we're on we're on lockdown ryan and and uh i'm sure you won't mind me saying but your partner rachel works in the nhs works in the hospital and you've not seen her for a little while now and i know that's been difficult for yourself do you think it's underplayed how hard that must be for people being removed from their families and and particularly at, at a young age yeah we've touched on it with a few people in the podcast where you just see the the glamour of being a footballer you don't see all that goes on <clears throat> sorry they have um same issues anyone else has they have to move house like anybody else has they have to put the kids in school like everybody else does if you imagine you're a footballer that may be over a 10-year period 
has moved to four different counties and played for maybe seven different teams. Imagine taking your three kids out of year five, they make friends, then they have to go to a new school for year six, then they go to a new high school. That must just be incredibly difficult, especially if your kids are telling you each night, I don't want to move, I don't want to move, and your manager's just told you you're not going to play here, so either see your contract out or move to a new area. That that must cause a lot of issues for your home life, and it's not something a fan would ever be privy to, and nor should they be, but I think it's something that needs to be certainly taken into consideration. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things he spoke about in there was about that sort of head down and deal with it. And I think he even referred to himself as, as selfish, which, you know, semantics-wise, might not, he might be being a little bit harsh on himself. But, Ant, you kind of commented before the show that we were talking about how he was all, you know, that was his way of dealing with it, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, it seems like he, he might have stumbled onto a way of... Um building a coping mechanism, basically, you know, whether it's from the, the upbringing that he had or, you know, the time spent in those change rooms back in the 90s where he's probably learned all this, you know, all these strategies of, you know, respecting other people and uh, and the like. It, he might have been able to actually create this sort of coping mechanism. But the interesting thing there is, is he, he says quite a bit, he says, you know, I was always okay with talking to people. I was always asked questions. I would always ask why I'm going out alone and ask why I'm being asked to do this and that. And I think that's really important. You know, we uh, the season in Korea finished in December and for a month, he, you know, we chased that. It wasn't really a dream, but he chased that opportunity of getting back to, to England. He needed to come back and he opened up to his agents and spoke to his family. And I think it's really important to, to stress to people, anyone listening to this, is that, those situations aren't just for footballers and that's not what we're trying to trying to highlight but those situations you can find those situations in in everyday life for for people listening to it now people who aren't footballers people who are doctors people who are lawyers people who are sitting behind uh, computer screens like I do for five days of the week you know you've got these these stresses in life that are just normal, really normal, normal stresses. But it's how they deal with them, and and Jamie, I think, dealt with them in a in a brilliant way, which was asking questions and talking to people. And I don't know where that came about because he, I think, he actually, you know, dumbs it down a little bit and says, you know, I just got my head down and got on with it. Well, for me, that says he's focusing more. Yeah, it kind of seems like that's the way that he worked out that he needed to be able to survive in that industry and. And you can imagine that maybe somebody who's, as I said before, maybe a little bit more emotionally driven, maybe a little bit more sensitive, might have struggled with that. One of the one of the interesting things with Jamie, he's forty four. He's still playing now in, in in non-league football. I did some research before this episode that the average football career in this country lasts about eight years. That's according to the PFA. So you're a long time retired, especially when you know you'd have to to give up a lot and, and work so hard, and, and it takes a long time to get to, to where you want to be. And I think one of the interesting things that, that Jamie talked about that he does have some fears, particularly about maybe his routine being removed, and and that thing about maybe he'll no longer be Jamie Cure and the footballer. Katie, do you think there's, you know, there must be a real difficulty about replicating the balls, replicating the, you know, that loss of identity when you retire? You know, because he's had such a long stand in Korea, and he's being used to having that buzz. I think for him, I mean, the good thing about Jamie is like we were touching on before about that he speaks a lot and he's communicating about his fears. Um, so he's already thinking of, you know, what potentially 
could go on in his mindset when he's not in the safeguarding of being in the football world anymore. Um, but the fact that he's already thinking about what his fears are and, you know, this loss of identity that he's had for so long and to have all of that downtime compared to being very active and training and going to this country and that country and there's always a buzz around him and a lot of admiration for him. I think that could take a lot of adjustments um, for him in that transitional period. But I think he's really aware that, you know, because they have sports psychologists and stuff nowadays, the footballers, so I'd like to think that he's he's had a lot of good mental coaching, and which is why he seems very mentally resilient and very aware of himself. So I think that half of the battle for what's to come for him is kind of already he's already took it on because he's already started thinking about what is life going to be like things are going to change I'm going to have to adjust you know so he's not burying his head in the sands and thinking I'm going to live forever this will be me forever um, and I think that's a really healthy mindset that he's recognized there is going to be a massive period of adjustment and he's going to need to tackle that and take that on and make that work for for the next phase of his life yeah, absolutely. And I think we do see a lot of footballers that come out of the game that struggle maybe with adjusting to, to what would be like a normal life and and maybe fall into problems with addiction or with, with, with other mental health issues. And Ryan, I, I think for us as football fans, we look at footballers and think, God, that must be incredible. That that feeling of scoring a goal or, you know, winning a, a trophy or winning at Wembley or those things. It must be incredibly hard to go from that and then all of a sudden one day you just don't have that anymore. Yeah, hundred percent. It's it's like anything with adrenaline, I suppose, isn't it? You always want the next high to be even bigger, and then once that just disappears completely, uh, you can see why so many players try and stay in the game. I suppose managing a team to success is is only next to playing a part physically on the pitch to someone's success. But there isn't a role for every former player, so naturally some people do drop out. I think. Um, also, there are players who do want to get away from it as well. Uh, you've seen a few times that people are always surprised about, but you'll get a high-profile player come out and say, I play football because it's a job. I don't necessarily enjoy it. And everyone sort of goes, oh, my God, are they crazy? But it just shows you that to some people it is a job. I think speaking about Jamie, from what I gathered from his his episode with us, is he'll certainly be someone who only ever is in football, whether that's media, coaching, uh, whatever it is, you can just tell that he, he will stay in football. I think him playing so long out of the love of football has given him a long period to maybe think about his next move, which is good. Whereas some players sort of drop out the game quite abruptly, which I think is where you're more likely to be vulnerable to the, to them extreme lows. Um, so I do think with with Jamie, he, he, he sort of knows what step he wants to go at. I think he'll have a crack at coaching men's football and if that doesn't work he'll, he'll, he'll back that up with some media stuff and I think it'd be brilliant at both to be honest with you uh, Dan you just we were touching on routine there and I think recently with the, with the lockdowns and and, the, and the, the changes in the in the UK and around the world at the moment you've got a, a complete change for everyone's routine you know whether it be you're working from home you can't go and see your loved ones you can't go and do the things that you used to do and I think when we look at Footballers coming out of the game and they have to change that routine. And obviously, you mentioned there the the bad elements to routines coming unhealthy. But Jamie, for me, seems like he's got a 
he's got a routine where it will be healthy. You know, he's mentioned before he played football to to score goals. He played for the love of the game. And I think when we look at routines for everyone, anyone listening to this right now, it's just trying to find those, even if it's a, a simple routine, even if it's just getting up and getting dressed at the moment or whether it's getting up and going out for a walk or anything like that. And I think the more we can cultivate those healthy routines, the better people will feel and the better mindset that people will be able to be in and make better decisions. And just as this big ripple effect um, throughout their lives and throughout, and for everyone else as well, you know, if you're in a good routine, you know, people around you are going to feel happier as well because you're happier. I think it's really important at the moment. It's it's really easy to adopt bad habits and bad routines and reach for really maladaptive coping strategies like drinking heavily, smoking, drug taking. Um, but I think what people really sometimes forget is whatever we're going through in life, that there is always some level of choice and some level of control. Um, and maladaptive coping strategies are usually reached for when you don't feel like you've got in control or you don't feel happy. They're largely a reaction to, to feelings. So, you know, everybody, we're all pleasure seekers. We're all trying to do things that make us smile on a daily basis. Um, but one thing I always try and communicate to people is that you've always got to remember that you have some level of control of the things that you reach for. And you can't feel like you've got no control because you always have some level of control and some level of ability. And that's what makes us grace as humans, that we, we always have some level of choice and control. And if we have that in our mindset, then we can choose the things that we put into to our daily routines to some to some extent. Uh, I, I was browsing on Twitter the other day, a simple technique that I found, and it's actually quite quite good is literally write down the things that you can control and then yeah. the things that you can't and then once that sort of even if you you know if you want to think about it or write it down once that's out there that you can control these things and you can't control the others it makes it a lot lot easier to focus on those ones that you can control uh, so for instance the other day I, I was struggling to get the internet in my household and I'm going through all these different emotions of oh this is really annoying this is really difficult and you kind of hit like a roadblock of like how how to deal with it. But if you write down what you can control in this situation, well, I yeah. can control when I ring up, what I ask, how we get it, and and that's it. And that's the only thing I can control. The only thing I can't control is whatever that company decides. So thanks for listening. We really hope you enjoyed that episode. Our next episode is out on Thursday with Miguel Delaney, who's the chief football writer at The Independent. We have a lot of interesting conversations with Miguel, chiefly about the article he wrote on Danny Rose a couple of years ago, where Danny spoke about his difficulties with anxiety and depression. So that's a really interesting conversation. So you can you can check out that on Thursday. You can also get onto our Twitter, which is Mark underscore Man, using the hashtag Where's the Talking Lads. And lastly, before we do Jamie's quick fire answers, is Squeaky Bum time. I'd just like to say thanks to, to Ryan and, and to Katie for, for being with me again today. And we'll see you on yeah, Thursday. Sure. Brilliant. A uh, little challenge for you then. Can you name all the clubs you've played for? Yeah, Norwich, Bristol Rovers, Reading, uh, Busan Icons, QPR, Swindon, Colchester, uh, Bournemouth, Barnsley, Shrewsbury, Exeter, 
Colchester, Leighton Orient, Cheltenham, Dagenham, Eastleigh, St. Albans, Farnborough, Bishop Stortford, Hornchurch. Smashed it. Almost, I think that was in order as well, wasn't it? <laughs> Brian, yeah, that's right. <laughs> the most memorable goal you've scored? Uh, my goal for Reading against Brentford, um, last day of the season, which uh, earned us promotion. Uh, we drew 1 1. Um, we were losing 1 0, and we either needed a draw or a win to, to finish second. Uh, and I managed to, to score the goal, which um, helped us get promotion. So that's the most memorable goal and probably most important. And what was it like playing under Alan Pardew? Um, yeah, it was good. Um, we had our, our differences. He was um, a new young manager, um, very confident. Uh, I suppose a lot of people I've heard a lot used to sort of call him chocolate as he went through his career that he would eat himself. And he was just, <laughs> he was just a confident guy, um, quite arrogant. But yeah. Um, since I've grown up and, and moved on, I, I've learned a lot that what he did was very good um how he managed uh the techniques he was using trying to move the, the club forward and you know advance advancing stuff um so i think at the time i didn't probably appreciate him as much as uh, as i do now um and you know i did enjoy working under him and like i say i had my clashes with every manager but um you know he was he was one of the good ones definitely um, so you've you've done the rounds in non-league the last few years. Has Glenn Templin ever tried to sign you? Uh, funny enough, uh, when I left Bishop Stortford, so what would that be three months ago? Is that when he is he at Stamford now? Is he? He was at Romford. So oh, Romford, that's it. Yeah. So we yeah, I I announced on on Twitter that I was leaving Stortford. Um, I'd already agreed the Hornchurch move, but obviously at the time I couldn't say anything because I hadn't signed. Um, and once it got announced in the morning from Stalford I was leaving, um, everyone assumed that obviously I, was, I had no club. So I had about 20 offers um, and one come from, from Romford. Now, some of these last ones get a little bit silly, so don't worry too much about your answers. <laughs> but uh, Dickie Borthwick is, aka the oldest winger in town, still playing football at 84. Um, <laughs> any chance you'll go for his record? I would love to, yeah. <laughs> Um, favourite kit you've played in and favourite boots oh wow um, so my favourite boots the, the Predators I can't, I yeah. can't think what year I think it might be about 2006 5 or 6 I used to wear the white ones they were like the Champions League colours black. yeah and I remember them I think um, Beckham used to wear them for a yeah. little bit I, yeah. I was always an, an Adidas football boot kind of person loved yeah. the Predators I was, when I was young, I wore Nike, so yeah. tempos and stuff. And then as I got a bit older, I went from that to, to Preds and F50s. And then they basically changed them sort of so much. I went away from them, um, but I'm sort of getting back into wearing Adidas again. So that would yeah. be, be them. Favourite kit? We wore a, a yellow and blue for um, Bristol Rovers, which I quite liked. It was like a, a second kit, yellow and blue. Nice. Which was yeah, it was nice. I mean, I've I've tended to like most of the away kits that I've worn at most clubs, um, but I've got yeah, there's so many kits I've worn. So best player you've ever played with in general? Uh, the best player was when I was a young lad. I'm breaking in at Norwich. Um, Ian Crook. Oh, brilliant! Uh, yeah, he he come from Tottenham. Um, I've played with some some very good players, but I would put him up there as centre midfielder. 
he was skinny, he smoked, um, but he could put a ball anywhere he wanted. Um, technically, he was a technician, you know, pass anywhere, free kicks. Um, yeah, you know, if you put him in modern day football, he'd be worth a, a hell of a lot of money. And um, he ended up being my coach when I went back to Norwich. You know, he's a top man. He, he lives in Australia now and coaches, but I would say Ian Crook as a, as a player at that time, you know, was in the Premier League and, and was one of the best players, definitely. And two to go, get a bit silly here. So um, you've only ever played for one Northern football club. What have you yeah. got against the North? Nothing at all. I would, <laughs> I would, I would love to have gone up there more. Um, I didn't really get loads of opportunities, to be honest. Um, I was always linked, but but never like actually had a, a sit down and, and, and went up and met clubs and turned. I never really turned anything down up north. Um, I think people just assumed that I was a sort of southern boy, West Country. So the M4 sort of corridor was was always sort of seemed to be my friend and, and a bit of Essex. Um, yeah. But no, I was um, more than happy. I've got friends that live in Liverpool and, um, you know, I've always enjoyed around Manchester and stuff. So I would have had no problem playing up north, none whatsoever. But for some reason, the, the, the clubs didn't um, didn't come calling. I must admit, I would have had you at Tramway down the years. My last memory of you playing at Prenton Park was um, we were in a relegation fight um, and you scored two, I think. And one of them was... What I've since seen you describe as your favourite type of goal, a oh, lob volley. Really love, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I remember, I think you did an interview and you said that um, we're susceptible to the balls over the top. And you, we had two young centre-halves, two big, That's powerful right. centre-halves, and they just couldn't deal with your movement, I didn't yeah, think. Yeah, I think I had uh, a few more opportunities on the day going through like that. Um, yeah. I've, yeah, like I said, I, I love playing up north, you know, the yeah. fans and, and everything. I really enjoyed it, but yeah, I never, um, I mean, I turned down Hull. When I moved back to Norwich, um, that was probably the only time I could have gone up that sort of way. But yeah, for some strange reason, um, the sort of those type of clubs never really come in for me. So yeah, it's a, it's a shame. And um, last but not least, um, you had to make your own pizza stand at Asda. What's your strategy? What pizza? I'm a, a meat sort of kind of guy, so I yeah. tend to sort of have um, spicy sausage, salami, um, ham. Uh, pepperoni, that type of thing, and then peppers, onions. Um, I'm, I'm like that sort of meat. I, but then I, I'm stupidly, I do get go for a, a vegetarian one at times. But if 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 I've got the choice, then it would be um, as much meat on there as possible. Oh, oh, pizza's good pizza, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, really. We're actually having it tonight. We're, we're treating ourselves because it's a Saturday. We thought we treat ourselves. So one of them is a. A vegetarian and the other one will be a, a, like a micro a meat, a meat feast. Yeah. That's been <laughs> yeah. our most common answer so far, to be honest with you. It must be a footballer's thing. Yeah. You, can't be, you, you can't be choosing ham and pineapple as you, if that was your go-to. It has to be meat, surely. Is pineapple acceptable on a pizza? Mm, I think it's acceptable, but it's not something I enjoy. No. Yeah. I mean, my missus will have it. Um, and she likes sort of fish, like tunas and stuff on pizza. She's a bit strange, but yeah. <laughs> if you're giving me an option, then... Yeah, no chance would it would it be on there, not at all. And you know, probably a stuffed crust and cheese and, and everything. You got there's no point eating pizza if you don't eat it properly like that. Exactly. Um, well, I think that that is sort of the, the end of the interview now, Jamie. I want to say a massive thank you. Um, with, without oh. the likes of yourselves coming on, it it, it wouldn't happen. And we're, we're really pleased with how um how how much people are agreeing to to talk to us, considering they probably know, don't know who we are. So um, no, it, it no, means the world. 
That's okay. And I've enjoyed it. It's been good. No, but no, brilliant. Thanks so much. Have a, have a brilliant day, Jamie. And, uh, oh, no problem at all. You too. Take, take it steady. There's concern now because Reading have a free kick that Vinash is going to take. Delivers it up towards Parkinson, who got the flick on. Kiriton! Yes! Majestic finish! A laid-back celebration! Does he know the importance of that goal? For so much of the season, Pardew has put him on the bench. He put him on the pitch midway through the second half. And boy, has he delivered! Jamie Kiriton!